Let's pray. Lord, wow, your scripture is amazing. Your creation is amazing. All things, Lord, in the heavens and the earth, each person, our gifts, our skills, our voices, all that we've experienced this morning, Lord, you are part of all of that. And so as we, we come to you in this time, we just ask for your giving us insight and understanding and openness and drawing us all the more close to you, Lord, in that special relationship in which we have been created. Lord, we ask your blessing upon us now. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you to imagine for a moment that someone decided that they figured out what God looked like. And so they drew a picture of God. Even though God is not a physical being, somehow they figured out how to draw a picture of God in his threeness yet oneness. They drew this picture and you got a sense of who God is, his immenseness and his powerfulness. Yet having seen this picture, it does not fully connect you with God in that personal way that God has created us to be in relationship with him. A picture might be helpful, but it's not enough. God knew that we needed a more intimate experience with God, and he knew that we were lost and we needed saving. As we continue this morning in our eco-tenets of faith, our denominational tenets of faith, the, the foundational beliefs that are taught in the scriptures that we hold as a denomination. This morning, we're going to look at the two central mysteries of the Christian faith, the Trinity and the Incarnation. Now, these are two big undertakings, and so there's going to be a lot that we're going to take in. Last night, I always give my sermon to, to Tammy every uh, Saturday night. She, for 25 years now, Saturday night is our time where I preach my sermon to her, and she gives me her critique of how terrible it is. And then I fix it all, and then I have it ready for Sunday. So that's kind of how it works. And last night, she was like, wow, I was just trying to follow and take it all in. And it was good, but it was a lot. So just open your minds. Get ready to take all this in, in great, important stuff into your minds and figure out, in fullness, the Trinity and the Incarnation. You will walk out of the door saying, I completely understand the Trinity and Incarnation. I have no, how, no more questions anymore because of what I learned today. But these two key teachings are so important, without them we would not have our Christian faith. In the second section of our eco-tenets of faith, it talks about these two great mysteries. And the first one it talks about is the Trinity. Now as you read over the Bible, you will discover that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each are unique, but they are not separate. They belong together as one God. This is important that there are not three gods, but there are three persons in God, but one God belonging together. They are co-equal and they are co-eternal. There is not a hierarchy, one being greater than the other. They are co-equal and co-eternal. This is key and vital to our teaching and is unlike any other teaching of any other religion. We believe it and teach it because Scripture is very clear in this truth. See, the word Trinity is actually not used in the Bible. 
but it is a word that is used to describe the truth that is taught in the Bible. And so you have tri, meaning three, and you have unity, meaning one, and then you put them together and it becomes trinity. To explain this truth that is so important in our scriptures. While it can be confusing to understand, it is important that we seek to understand as best we can this truth of God being three, yet one. We see, as uh, Doug was reading over Genesis 1, we got to verse 26, and you see that God is spoken of in plural. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. God is spoken about in plural. Why, there is mutual working together. In short, you could say that each one of the Trinity has a role. The Father creates, the Son redeems, the Holy Spirit sets apart. Yet they perform these roles in full co cooperation with the other members. In each operation, all three members are present. That's where it's confusing, right? Each kind of has its role, but they all partake of it together. Although the Father is preeminently the Creator, the Son and Spirit were also involved. The Son is the Redeemer, yet God the Father and the Spirit sent the Son to the world to redeem. The Holy Spirit is the sanctifier, yet the Father and Son also cooperate in this work. There could be much, much, much more said about this, but for our sake this morning, I want to move on to the next tenet of a part of the tenet of faith, which talks about God being infinite, eternal, immutable, and ineffable. God is infinite in that he is not confined to time or space. I heard a wonderful example that I think kind of illustrates this. Uh, it's a story of a, of a man. He sat down and he began to write a story. He was an author, right? So he's writing the story and he's creating characters and he's creating the storyline. And he's writing and he's writing and it's coming together. But at some point, he's like, you know, I'm hungry and I'm tired. And so he got up and he walked into the kitchen and he got some food to eat. And then he realized he had some errands to run. And so he went out and ran these errands. Several hours passed. And then he said, you know, I need to get back to my story. So he goes back into his office. He sits down. But when he sits to write the story, the characters in the story and the storyline itself has not changed, has it? No time has gone by in that story. It is still at the exact same place as when the author left. Why? Because the author is completely separate from the time of his story. So God is completely separate from our time frame. God is beyond us in a way that is probably hard for us to understand at times. But this leads us to the next quality of God, which is the fact that God is eternal. God has always existed and always will exist. God has no beginning and no end. And again, that's so challenging because we have a beginning, right? We're born and we come into this life and, and we have birth and life and, and we live and we grow and we get older and, and then we have a time of death. We have a beginning and we have an end. Everything has a beginning and an end that we know about, but God has no beginning. God has no end. God is eternal. Along with that, we are told that God is immutable, meaning that God is unchanging and unable to be changed. 
Now, this is a wonderful and important truth. I mean, we change all the time, don't we? I just talked about how we get older and we get more aches and we get more pains and we forget things, right? Our memory starts to go and we have trouble, different things. We change. We change friends. We change cities where we live. We change jobs where we work. We change. Everything around us is constantly changing. Knowing that God is unchanging is core to our faith because we can know that we can always count on God being there for us. God will always exist. No one will dethrone God, and nothing can change God. And then the Bible tells us that God is ineffable. In other words, too great to be expressed by words. We try to explain God, right? We use words like trinity and immutable and omnipotent and, and so many other words to describe God. We, we put all these words together hoping that we can get some picture of God, that we can get some understanding about God. But it's so difficult to understand the fullness, the gloriousness of God. We cannot take in his fullness and his goodness and his power and his glory. He cannot be contained or explained. The Bible tells us that God is a source of all goodness. There's a story of a professor who was an atheist, and he loved to embarrass his students in his class that were Christians. And at the beginning of every semester, he would always ask, how many of you are Christians? Raise your hands. And so all the Christians would raise his hand, their hands, and he'd know which ones he would try to embarrass throughout the semester. But this particular first day of class, he pointed to one of the freshmen in the class, and he said, did God make everything? And the freshman said, yes, he did. And then the professor said, well, if God made everything, then he made evil, because evil exists in the world. And what kind of God would make evil? The freshman was stunned. He didn't know what to say. He didn't have an answer, and so he just kind of lowered his head. He didn't want to be embarrassed anymore. But then another student raised his hand, and he said, professor, may I ask you a question? The professor said, sure, go ahead. And the student asked, does cold exist? Well, the professor kind of laughed. He says, of course cold exists. Have you not ever been cold? What kind of question is that? To which the student replied, well, actually, sir, cold isn't something that's made. What we consider to be cold is the absence of heat. In science, absolute zero is when there is absolutely no heat. The first law of thermodynamics states that the amount of heat energy of the universe is constant, and all that happens is the transfer of heat from place to place. We use the term cold to describe how we feel when heat is not there. But you don't make cold. It is the absence of heat. Now, the professor was silent. And then he continued, what we consider to be evil is really the absence of good. We use the term evil to describe what we experience when goodness is not there, but we don't make evil. It is simply the absence of good. In the creation story found in the first chapter of Genesis, we read that God created everything and that everything God created was good. But because of sin in the world, there is now evil. So you see, just because evil exists in the world doesn't mean that God created it. It simply means that human beings have misused our God-given freedom and fallen away from our created state of goodness into the uncreated state of sin. God is all good, and our all-good God 
did not create evil. Even more, we understand that God is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is all-present in our world. We see the power of God working through Christ, through the healings that that Christ did, through the, the raising of the dead, through even knowing the thoughts of those around him. God is above all and over all and sees all. And lastly, we understand that God created all things. We did a highlight of Genesis chapter 1. I encourage you to read that in full, to really read it in detail. It is a great read. It talks about God's goodness as he created all these things. He created all of these things for us. At the end, God created man and woman in his image. He created us so that we could enjoy a relationship with God and so that we could enjoy a relationship with one another. God also created the angels, including Lucifer, who was the greatest angel. But Lucifer rebelled, and many angels rebelled with him, and the angels in their evil became demons, and Lucifer became known as Satan, which is the word that means adversary, as Satan became the adversary of God. So first we are created in God's image, created to be in a special relationship with God. This relationship is to be personal, unlike any other relationship in creation. And second, we are created with a purpose, to worship God, and to fellowship with one another. Even more, we are created to love one another and be in fellowship with God's people in that love, in that unity. While we do many things in our lives, these two things are foundational and should hold higher priority in our lives, the worshiping of God and the fellowshipping with one another. But the second great mystery is the incarnation while God spoke to his people through the prophets in the Old Testament, he decided that it was important for him to come to this earth and to bring his message in person. Even more, God came to this earth in Jesus Christ to humble himself, as we're told in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8, and allow himself to be crucified for our sins, to pay the penalty of our sins. This whole idea of God taking on flesh and dying for our sins is what makes Christianity so unique and personal and wonderful. Well, to the Greeks of the New Testament, it was nothing short of blasphemy to expect God to involve himself in the affairs of the world. The gospel is about this amazing truth that the Son of God became the Son of Man so that we could become the children of God. Selwyn Hughes is the founder of the Crusade of World Revival, and he was at, once asked this question by an interviewer. The interviewer said, what do you have that other religions don't have? And his response was, I have Jesus Christ, the Word become flesh. Jesus Christ, the Word become flesh. It isn't until we really understand this concept that we can hope to make it a reality in our lives and in our church and in our world. It is the idea that God decided that he needed to send more than a representative to speak on his behalf. The incarnation is God choosing to come himself. 
I've seen many basketball games. You know I'm a sports fan, and so I'm sorry if those of you don't know sports that well. I'm always you know, talking about sports in my illustrations. But I'm a basketball fan, and a lot of times, if you've watched any basketball game, you know that from time to time, there's the end of the game comes, right? And there's maybe just seconds left in the game. And one team is down by a basket, and just as the time runs off the clock, someone makes a shot and ties the game. Right? What happens? The game is tied. What do we do now, right? Well, when the game is tied, it goes to an overtime period. And now this team that was on the verge of losing <clears throat> has a whole nother opportunity to win the game. And oftentimes, that team that just scored the last basket ends up winning the game. In Christianity, we learn that salvation is not attained, but obtained. Christianity is not attained, it is obtained. It goes along with the question, does mankind strive to reach up to God, or does God come down to mankind through the incarnate Jesus? In essence, when Jesus came down to die for our sins, he gave us this overtime period, if you will. He gave us this opportunity to really discover the life that we have been given by God, to live into that which God has created us for. The deeds that we do, therefore, are not to gain salvation, but our deeds are response to the fact that we have been saved in Christ. We're so grateful for our salvation that we want to do good deeds for God. By the very nature of things, you cannot be saved by faith and by works. Likewise, we can't be saved by faith and keep our salvation through our works. In Christ, we obtain salvation so that we might truly do these good works in honor and in glory of God. I love that there are different kinds of bread. Uh, Norman would appreciate this. He talked about on Friday how he loves fruits. And now he's probably going to be forever remembered about that, right? Once you make a statement like that, Norman, it never is forgotten. Everybody can think, oh, Norman, food, food, Norman, right? Just <laughs> Hand in hand, they're going to go together. But I, I love bread um, with spaghetti. Love French bread, right? Or I'm not sure if Hawaiian rolls are bread, but I'm going to call them bread because they're so good, right? And they go with so many meals. And when I eat sandwiches, I love wheat bread. Wheat bread. But I wanted to talk about bread because I wanted us to begin to think about this whole idea of bread. See, Jesus is the bread from heaven. We particularly experience this when we partake of the Lord's Supper, right? And we eat of the, the bread, the, the body of Christ. It's a tangible reminder that Jesus is our life-giving bread from heaven. As we partake of the bread, we are reminded that just as we need physical bread for our physical well-being, so we need Jesus for our, the wellness of our soul to sustain our souls. And we remember that Jesus is the only food that can truly satisfy our most fundamental hunger. Our most fundamental hunger is that need to connect with the God who has created us. We are reminded that it is by faith that we are nourished from this bread of heaven. As we talked about the Trinity, we saw how God the Son played a part in creation. God the Son was, or 
part of that creation, right? When, remember when we were going through our series in Colossians, in Colossians 1, it talks about how Jesus, as the Son, he created all things. But he is also, we are told, the reason why all things continue to exist. See, the Greek construction of this verse can actually be translated as Jesus allows all things to continue, or Jesus allows all things to endure. Jesus is both the creator and the sustainer of our world. Jesus brought all things together, and through his death and resurrection, having gained victory over death, he allows us to partake of his death and resurrection. So we are told in the book of Romans 6-5, read the yellow with me. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So Jesus holds the world together and sustains it. He's the head of the body, the church, and holds that together. He's the Lord of our life, and he holds our life together. He is the one who has gained eternal life for us, and thus he holds all things together for all eternity. Tomorrow, some of us are going to be going to Mexico on our missions trip. We're going to go and we're going to do some work at the orphanage and we're going to do some work at Pastor Gabriel's church. And then we're going to return. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a slideshow for you, showing pictures of what we did. And we're going to tell testimonies and, and tell you what, what we did. And, and it's going to be really a blessing for you to hear what we did in the name of our church and in the name of Jesus. But it's not the same as you going yourself and experiencing it personally. If you went yourself and you experienced it personally, you would gain a totally different understanding of that experience. Many times in my sermons, in my devotions, I tell you about how personal God is to me. I talk about the, the connection I have with God and, and the love that I experience from God in my life. I tell you stories from the Bible of people who experienced a very personal and intimate relationship with God and how God was working in and through their lives. But my telling you these things will never give you the full knowledge of this personal God. The only way for you to experience the full knowledge of this personal God is for you to receive Jesus as your Savior and your Lord and to experience that personal relationship with God that only comes once you have received Jesus Christ. And once you have received him, he draws you into his presence and you experience that for yourself. And then you could tell me stories of how you experience God in a personal and intimate way. Lastly, as followers of Christ, we become transformed into the image of God, the image that God created us to live into. I want to very briefly list five ways that we are to be transformed. And as I go through this list, and I'm going to go through it quickly, but as I go through this list, hopefully as you hear these five things, you're going to say, yes, 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 I want to be transformed, or yes, God is transforming me in those ways. And so here are the five ways. When we're being transformed by God, these are the things that should be happening in our lives. First, we humble ourselves to the point that we understand that it is not about my will, but it is about God's will. And we desire to follow God's will all the more. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, again, read the yellow with me, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple 
must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We desire to follow Christ, to deny ourselves and to follow the will of God. Second, we are transformed into the image of God when we put off our sinful clothes and we clothe ourselves with things like compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and peace. Third, we are transformed when we have a right mind to see and understand and follow the way of God. When we can see and understand the way of God, we are then being transformed because now we have a way to see what God has for us. Fourth, we are transformed when we hunger to be with Jesus. When we want to know more and more about Jesus, when we're drawn into that relationship with Jesus all the more, when we long to sit at Jesus' feet and learn from him through the scriptures. And fifth, we are transformed in the image of God when we desire to tell others what God has done for us. Let me tell you what God has done for me. Let me tell you how God has transformed my life. Let me tell you how I am different now because I know Jesus. We long to share that good news with others. The story of God has saved us and forgiven us and transformed our lives into something special. In section two, letter A of the tenets of faith of our denomination, it says this, the exclusivity of these claims establishes that God's love is not impersonal, but a particular and intimate love in which each individual child of God is called by name and known as precious. That God's love is not only acceptance, but a transforming and effective love in which his image within us is restored so that we are capable of holy living. Now, I know that's a mouthful to take in, but in essence it's saying that God is a personal God who shows us community through the Trinity and how he is personal in sending his son, Jesus Christ, in the Incarnation. We are children of God, loved by God, transformed by his love and forgiveness. We are then to live into this image of God, which is to be our desire, to be holy as God is holy. May we seek to do this and be thankful for these two foundational great mysteries of our Christian faith. Let us pray.